DEI budgets are under attack, but the goals haven't changed. Whether you're looking to increase your DEI knowledge, expand your market reach, or gain a competitive advantage in business, we have the solution. TDM Library is your single source for expert curated DEI resources, strategies, and solutions, all designed to help you transform your workplace culture and be a more effective contributor. For $9.99 per month, you get access to our searchable subscription-based digital library. There, you'll find articles, practical how-to guidebooks, podcasts, award-winning micro-videos, and more than 700 Q&As designed to help DEI practitioners, thought leaders, and executives create a more inclusive workplace. Whether you prefer to listen, watch, or read, we have the resources for you. TDM Library goes beyond the basics to dive deep into topics such as inclusive language, the business case for DEI, talent acquisition, and C-suite engagement. For less than the price of a sandwich, you get access to our library of more than a thousand pieces of original expert curated DEI content. Join today and get your first 30 days free. Get your library card now at tdmlibrary.thediversitymovement.com. I always, uh, always love my time with DT. <laughs> Welcome to the Donald Thompson Podcast. My guest today is Jenna Wilson. Jenna, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So one of the things we like to do is I actually like our guests to explain a little bit who they are, give a little bio information, their background, so that it's in your voice, your perspective, as our folks get a chance to get to know you a little bit. And then we'll dig into some questions and, uh, and we'll have some fun today. Cool. All right. Well, I appreciate you turning it over to me right at the beginning. I'm actually from Tucson, Arizona, born and raised Tucsonan, went to Arizona State University. And then for some reason, I wanted to move to the Windy City. So I've been in Chicago way too long <laughs> and I haven't gotten back to Arizona as much as I'd like, but I also sought out Northwestern here in Chicago. So I got my master's of science and communication from Northwestern. And now I work at Glassdoor helping clients on their employer brand and recruitment marketing. And I also own my own communications consulting business as well. So it's been quite a journey. I always say that I am the perfect mix, if you will. I grew up in a biracial, bipolitical household. Dad was half black, Mom was white, mom was Republican, dad was Democrat, so we learned not to speak about politics at the dinner table unless you wanted a spaghetti to be thrown everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. What a great way to, to get a party started. I think one of the things in our country today is that the blended environment, the blended family, kind of that melting pot concept of America is more prevalent than ever. And one of the things we'll dig into later is really how that kind of affects your view the way that you grew up and your environment and different things of that nature. But I think as we jump into our conversation, tell us a little bit about your entrepreneurial business, right? Tell us a little bit about civil communication and, and how you got started with that. Yeah. What the heck is civil communication? I actually start off every speech with saying, you know, everyone knows communication is a skill of the century, but no one knows what it actually looks like. You know, it's what employers look for in employees. It's what you know, therapists will tell you is the secret sauce to any successful relationship. And yet it 
has kind of lost its meaning. So I actually started studying civil communication in 2013, 14. And I realized that the workplace is, is deficient of this. It really needs a good dose of civil communication. And civil communication, in my own words, is communicating productively. So I have taken more of a passive approach and really just tried to research as much as I could, study as much as I could when it comes to this new discipline because it is so new. And I, I realized that if I only talked about communication, it was going to be very surface level and go in one ear, out the next. So I spent, you know, from 2014, essentially, to 2019, diving into study, case studies, practicing it in my own workplace. And then towards the end of 2019, and then I officially filed my LLC in March, so in the middle of the pandemic, we went full steam ahead with actual consulting on what communication looks like and civil communication in business. One of the things in, in building a company that you've got right is you've got to identify where you're going to be special, right? And you went from a communication function that's very broad, like you described, and then drill down into civil communication. And then you've hit on something that is really a challenge for most companies, right? How do you create a high standard for excellence, which means you've got to coach people. You've got to have conversations about things that you want people to improve on, but how do you allow people to be motivated and push through those challenges right, in a productive way. Give me a couple of examples of where people get it wrong and then how you help them improve. So that's something where I do think my expertise comes into play because I don't think a lot of people in business take the time to pay attention to what's, what's not working and why. They realize that they're not hitting their numbers. They realize that their bottom line, you know, is down year over year. They realize that their stakeholders might not be as impressed as they should be. And yet they don't really know what to shake up. They're like, all right, well, we'll get rid of this resource. We'll bring in this resource. We'll invest more here. And if you're really inside the workplace, you're able to, or at least I am able to observe. I think, you know, growing up in that background of listening and not talking politics and really having to observe, I have created this skill set of understanding the underlying issue. So for example, and that's one of the reasons I still love being, you know, in the corporate world and being full-time is that I have real-time examples. Mm -hmm. So two years ago, our third quarter, so October to December is our busiest time of year. I'm in sales, so we weren't doing well. There was a team of six or seven of us, and it was just like, we just weren't performing. And my manager called a meeting one day and we all sat down and she was like, what gives? You know, like last quarter, we were like a well-oiled machine. You know, it wasn't a new team. We had worked together for a couple months at that point, and yet everyone was performing subpar. So I was sitting in that meeting, and I do get a little bit timid at times because they haven't consulted me, you know, hired me to, to diagnose the problem. So I kind of timidly raised my hand, and I'm like, okay. Sitting there, I'm like, what is everyone's definition of a team? you know, especially in a sales world, is it that we are all striving towards one goal or is it that we all have individual goals and we're working together to help each other hit those goals? And it was like 50-50 split. And my manager was like, whoa, like I thought we were all in this hitting one goal together. And she's like, so I'm going to have to sit with this for a minute. And she pulled me aside like the next day and she was like, I probably wouldn't have called everybody out like that at the beginning, you know, cause it definitely was, you know, pitting people against each other, what they believe. But she was like, but that also uncovered something that I had no idea 
that was a problem. Yeah, that's that's phenomenal. Let me ask a different question about yeah. you specifically. It's a great example, right? What gave you the courage, confident commitment, right? You mentioned timid, but the way you handled it wasn't timid, right? Like you put it out there, right? So when you think of civil communication, where does candor and where does courage come into that civil communication? Great question. So I think... I would think of it in two different ways. So for myself, it's confidence in my ability to employ civil communication in these tough situations. For others, I don't know if you're familiar with Kim Scott and her book, Radical Candor, but she talks about being able to challenge directly if you care personally. So you have to have a good mix of caring personally while challenging directly. And because I had worked with the team that far, I already knew we were good. You know, there was no animosity in the team. We had already established that care personally. So I was able to challenge directly and I was able to do it, you know, articulately or civilly, however you will, with civil communication. When you think about, and and that's a great way to describe it, right? Caring personally, everybody doesn't do that at work, right? Some people are kind of phoning it in, right? How do you balance a full-time commitment and then building right kind of your future business if you will yeah right how do you how do you balance that to where everybody gets what they need that's a it's a great challenge because a lot of people have dreams and aspirations and having a, a side hustle if you will or a new business you're starting at night or on the weekends is a great way to dip your toe into entrepreneurship while you're kind of figuring out your go to market and different things but how do you do so without cheating your dream or cheating what the employer is paying you It's definitely a delicate dance. I will say that. I'm also fortunate to work in an organization that is very accepting and encouraging. So I've worked in toxic environments, which gave me a lot of content as to what civil communication is not. But I'm also very fortunate to be at an organization where you bring your whole self to work. So one of one of my pillars is uh, and where I think the workplace needs to improve is that A lot of organizations don't encourage that and they force you to check your personality or to check your identity at the door. Like when you clock in, you put on their hat and you take off yours. And I really do think that the successful organizations, they hire leadership and they train leadership and they encourage leadership and people managers to help individuals grow because they know that that'll benefit their business at the end of the day. So I'm able to be very, like my manager subscribes to my newsletter. He's very open to, Hey, what's your take on this? Because you have civil communication in your mind. And for that, it makes me want to work harder for him because he accepts it and he encourages it. So when I'm, you know, eight to five, I'm working. And when I'm 5 PM and beyond, and then before 8 AM, I'm working on my own. That's awesome. We all have stereotypes and biasy and different things like that. And when you are working with people that are Gen Z and millennial and different things, there's this construct of the older crowd, right? That millennials don't want to work hard. They just want to kind of have experiences and go travel the world and different things. What I've learned as I've matured and, and eliminated that bias is not really a work ethic thing. It is a commitment thing to something with a worthy cause versus just working and working hard because that what you signed up to do at a company. And so a lot of times we see maybe some of that lack of engagement has very little to do with the bias around generation or age, but it has a lot to do with the engagement, right, in terms of, of what one is doing. And so when you think about 
one of the things, and I'm going to give an example that takes away engagement or that spirit of belonging is it's diversity and inclusion in the workplace. It is some of the DNI related tasks that don't allow people to have that full belonging that you mentioned earlier. Yeah. What are some of the things in your work experience where you've seen diversity and inclusion done well, or you've seen areas where there's kind of a gap there that we need to look at? Oh man. Uh, so these are the tough conversations that you have to have, right? Looking back on experiences is difficult for me because I always take everything with a grain of salt. And I think we've been programmed for that. You know, this is how we have to fit into the workplace. This is what professionalism looks like. If you want to exceed here, this, this is what you have to do. And I actually don't think it's until you're removed from that environment or until you have tough conversations with other people, even when you're in that environment. So an example that I think of is a role where women were required to wear heels, you were required to wear makeup. I remember one day I walked into the office and I had a ponytail in my hair and my manager pulled me aside and legitimately pulled the ponytail out of my hair and said that doesn't look professional. It looks like you're about to go play an intramural softball game. Um, and I was really, yeah, I was really offended by that because I'm like, well, what does that have to do with my professional, my, you know, my work ethic or what I'm bringing to the table? I'm on the phone with people all day, you know, like they can't see what I look like. And then I've also, you know, fitting the mold, you having to fit into that professional mold is definitely something that I've experienced. But I've also, example where I'm at today, you know, I'm also in a workplace where they have employee resource groups and ERGs. And I remember my uh, second week on the job, they had a lunch and learn with the pride resource group. And they were openly talking about their coming out stories and how you should ask pronouns. And they, it was basically just a panelist of people and it was a safe space. You know, there was psychological safety there. There was supportive audience. There was a great moderator. And I was looking around being like, is this like appropriate? Is this allowed? But again, you don't, you don't know what you don't know um, until you're exposed to those type of conversations. Oh, that's powerful. So this pull of the ponytail out of the hair, how did, certainly in the moment, awkward, inappropriate, all those words come together. How did that change your feel of the organization long-term? How long did that, because sometimes you can have a moment in a company or with an individual and you just chalk it up and move on. Yeah. Is that one of those cases or did it change your view of the organization as a whole, right, as you went through the process career-wise? I think in the moment I was so eager to fit in. I wanted to fit in. I think personally, I've always had an issue with identity. You know, it's either you're Republican or Democrat, you are black or you are white. And I'm coming from a mix of both. So I've always had a hard time understanding where my identity lies. And when you, you know, when you're in the corporate world, it's really easy to tie your identity to that organization. So in the moment, I was like, okay, this is what you have to do. Like, this is what the organization wants. And then I, it, you know, I remember when I started dating my fiance, I was telling stories and I mentioned that one. He was like, what? And it, it really wasn't until that moment when I was like, oh, and then I talked about it to a friend and she's like, wait, what? And that's when I started to change. So it wasn't in that moment, but it was afterwards when I started hearing other perspectives outside the organization. Yep. No, that's powerful. I think, the, you know, the point that you're making is that we all kind of are looking at how do we assimilate. Yeah. And we're all struggling with that balance between, you know, what the group expects 
and what our personal priorities and values and, and liberty should be in a work environment. Yeah. And I think it's, it's certainly broadening. I think that companies are realizing now that creating that safe space, whether it's the conversation, the ERGs you're talking about now, or the experiences before, that people can bring their whole self to work. And it's getting better, but we have a lot of work to do, right? And, and go from there. So when we talk about civil communication in your consulting practice, how does somebody engage with you? What does that engagement look like? And, and how do they know they're getting their money's worth in terms of how do they see and sustain results? Great question. So I engage with clients in three different ways. Number one is speaking opportunities. You know, going back to you don't know what you don't know. So I, you know, am here to help bring awareness to what civil communication is and why it can be effective. Uh, so speaking engagements is number one. Number two is workshops and training. You know, adult education is something that typical workplaces and enablement lack and could have a refresh, if you will. So I develop training specifically for organizations. I work best when they are personalized, but I also do have, you know, out of the box workshops and trainings as well that we can explore. And then the third one is direct consulting where, hey, we have a problem. We don't know what it is. It could be communication. Can you come in to our work? You know, we want to engage with you on a statement of work. Can you come into our workplace and help us? And then most likely that also involves a workshop in the end to train the trainers so that way I don't have to come in all the time. I want to make sure that I'm leaving them with those tools to be able to deploy them down the line. No, that's powerful. One of the things when we look at the diversity movement, an organization that I founded, and we're trying to look at DNI not differently, but with more power tools, mm -hmm. right? So, for example, we're doing consultation, we're doing webinars, we're doing training, but we also have mobile applications that reward people for DNI related behaviors. We have e learning components that allow people the psychological safety to really take a step back and learn some things on their own. We have films that are specifically targeted to DNI stories mm -hmm. so that people can watch those in an entertaining way and then they can report back the feedback. And so we're basically building a technology platform to deliver these kinds of services. When I think about civil communication and how that kind of layers in, what are some of the hot button items that if you were gonna spend 20, 30 minutes that you'd give a primer, right? What are some of the really the tips and tricks to think about that quickly and then get them on the right track. And maybe it's something to read or maybe it's a couple tips. And I love the aspect of the stories because I think that is a pivotal part of what's missing in a lot of trainings. You know, if you're hearing tips and tricks, it doesn't really resonate with you unless you hear it from someone else's perspective um, and something that they've gone through. So that's one thing I'm actually, I would say my content right now is focused on civil listening. You know, we went from, you know, the Black Lives Matters movement to being an ally and now I want to bring back in listening. Like, what does it mean to actually listen? So if we're to look at civil communication and think of tips and tricks, there's a textbook from my mentor who was my thesis director in undergrad called Hot Topics Cool Heads. And it's a playbook on Amazon that you can buy where it really just talks about how you can have a civil dialogue. It was intended for families to actually have in the living room and it has expanded into community dialogues, if you will, in Southern Arizona, in Phoenix. That's so awesome. that's, yeah, that's something, again, you know, when I talk about the workshops and training, civil dialogue is something that I help facilitate as well. But that's a great textbook to read. And then I 
typically will start by saying, acknowledge the humanity of the other person you're in conversation with. Mm. I think it's really, really easy when you're in the workplace to be like, you have zero credentials. You know, I'm superior. Even in your community, like I'm right, you're wrong. You believe X, Y, and Z, and I believe this. And if you're able to stay, take a step back and think, okay, they are a daughter of someone. They are a son of someone. They wake up in the morning to the same alarm that I do. You know, whatever it may be, acknowledging their humanity, you're able to approach them in a more civil way, and that'll open the dialogue. No, that's really good. I really love to read. Personally, I'm a competitive learner, and so hot topics, cool heads is really, really important. And then really recognizing the humanity of the other person. I think, you know, it's difficult sometimes when we're all used to trying to position our own idea to take a step back and really be that civil listener, as you described. And I think that the more you care, the more you're going to be able to do that. When we look at some of the transitional shifts in work, right, there's two major things that are happening, a lot of them, but two major ones. One of them is we're all having to get comfortable with this work at home environment, right? And so one of the questions, and I'll give you, give you a minute, I'm going to give you a two-part, is the work at home paradigm and how do you now transition this civil listening to all these digital tools and different things like that. And then the second thing is the generational differences, right? Where we're merging now, Gen Z is about to approach the workplace, we've got the millennials, we've got baby boomers, Gen X, and all these different fabric we're weaving a fabric really of these multi-generations and so give me some thoughts on number one this remote work paradigm and how do we have that civil listening and then talk a little bit about the generational component absolutely when it comes to remote work and civil listening lean towards your zoom people can tell when you are just hanging backwards or when your eyes are down or when you're they can see your eyes going across the screen when you're typing something or reading an email it doesn't have to be brain science you know it literally is just fully engaging like sit up straight have a little bit of a lean the same way you would as they teach you in an interview you know your body language can still tell a story even when there's a computer screen in between you two so that's a really easy step Number two is, I think you almost have to be a little bit more explicit with your working hours, you know, and I think that definitely leans a little bit more onto the communication side. But if you're receiving that, whether it's a notification on Slack, a notification on Zoom or an email out of office response, you have to receive that very well and understand, you know, people don't work all around the clock anymore. I used to be someone who I check my email all day, every day, but now because work and life are blending together, I do have to set more strict parameters with myself. Those are very good tips. And one of the things um, I'd like for you to do and take this moment is how do people get in touch with you? How can they sign up to your newsletter so they can read your blog, right? So I want to give you some space to share that information really quick. Great. Thank you for that. So Instagram at Career Civility is definitely the easiest way. I include the link in bio. I'm not great with social, but I can do that. And then even just emailing me, Jenna at careercivility.com. I'm very receptive because I am a one woman show. So I can add you to the newsletter. I'll make it really easy for you. But of course, you can always go to my website, careercivility.com. No, that is fantastic. Because one of the things that we're trying to do with the diversity movement is we want to build a platform of partners that have very specific niche areas that they can go deep in. And so we don't want to be the kind of organization that tries to be one size fits all. We're going to have some things that we're very, very good at, but we're also going to have a portfolio of partners that can be very strong on race or very strong on civil communication 
or organizational change, right? So that we can always provide the best outcome for our clients because the work is too important, right? By the time somebody realizes and is committed enough to ask for help, one of the worst things is for them to get the wrong help, right? They need to be paired with somebody that can really dig into their situation and provide them not a magic pill or button, but points of progress pretty quickly so they get the momentum that asking for help and bringing somebody in is the right thing to do and the good thing to do. So I appreciate you sharing that information so that our audience and, and teams can, can listen to that. You mentioned coming from a biracial family and kind of the challenge growing up of where do you fit in. Give me a little bit more perspective on how you've worked through that right? Like how you've pushed through that and, and some of the things you may have thought and grown through and worked through over time. I definitely think it's still a work in progress. And I think it goes back to your point of it's not a one size fits all. And I also think it ties into how do you incorporate different generations in the workplace too. One of the things that I talk about is, you know, what worked for you and what was successful for you to get you where you are today might not be successful for someone else. And that is a lesson that I think individuals learn over time, especially now, you know, in this civil rights movement where people are looking around and they're saying, well, it worked for them, but they don't look like me. So how is it going to work for me? And that's, really, really important. And that's something I have to remind myself every day because I was, you know, a go-getter from the start. You know, I, I was taught, you know, from my dad, like this is our, he always says like, this is our burden to wear or our cross to wear, our burden to wear, our cross to wear. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> so we're just, we're going to move forward, you know, focus on what you can control. Your work ethic is something you can control. So I always thought, you know, if I can put my head down and do the work, I will be able to get to where that person is. And yet I look around, I'm like, well, it's not a one size fits all. I don't look like them and I don't have the experience that they do. And I have different experience. So how can I take that and run with it? And how can I better the workplace for that? And I, that's where I see change in the workplace because I don't think we're there yet with the generational acceptance, because you look at the older generations and it's, well, I, this is how I was successful. And we're not quite there yet with seeing other realms of being successful. You know what I mean? Like Gen Xers were the first ones to introduce a work-life balance because women were getting into the workforce and then the men had to pick up the slack to pick the kids up from soccer. And it wasn't until, you know, the boomers saw those Gen Xers being like, oh, they can do it. I guess it works. You know, we're still getting the work done. Then Gen Xers looked at millennials. Well, they want to work from home and how could they ever be successful? And then a global pandemic shows up and it's, oh, maybe we can be as productive when we're working from home. One of the points you made earlier is when you're outside of a situation, you can look more smartly into what happened, right? When you're living in that moment, right, there's a natural resistance to that change. And so totally get where you're coming from. And I think the other thing with change is sometimes it's forced upon you. And, you know, one of the transformational events that you mentioned, right, we'll just use work from home, right? We had no choice. So that means we had to find, adapt, use, and perfect the tools that were available, right, to be as productive as we could be at home. It's, a, it's an interesting thing. Anything you'd like to add before we switch gears on your company, your thought process towards civil communication? I think it's a great niche. As we talked offline. I was really excited to introduce you to our audience and, and partner with you at, at TDM. 
because I think two things, I think we need more bright, talented, smart people that want to dig into the DNI space and have their niche because the generational thing is something you can't learn. It's something you're experiencing, yep. right? Think about how odd it would be for me to go talk to uh, a group of Gen Zers and say, look, this is what Gen Zers think, right? <laughs> It would, it would just be weird, right? It doesn't matter how much research I've done or whatever, right? Yeah. So sometimes uh, you can learn a thing and sometimes you have to learn a thing and be experiencing something so that you can give that value to others. But anyway, let me give you some space for some closing comments kind of on civil uh, communication. Yeah, absolutely. And I, the one thing I would say is that it's new. It can be uncomfortable to navigate this space and that's where... As a communications consultant, I like to talk. And so if you're wondering, you know, it, what is this? Is this applicable? You know, will it help? What will be the ROI? Let's just have a conversation. You know, every single movement starts with having a conversation. People didn't know what social media marketing was back in the day or what public relations was back in the day. And yet it's a huge discipline that people are investing in and they're seeing the return on that. So even just having that conversation or having the courage to reach out and admit that maybe your workplace could use some improvement uh, is a great start and I'm here to help. Oh, that's awesome and a great way to, to segue. And so one of the things that we're trying out with our podcast, and it's a great way to give value to some of the guests that we have, is I'm going to turn the tables a little bit and I'm going to give you the hosting microphone, so to speak, and, <laughs> and give you the opportunity to use this time to ask any questions you might have about entrepreneurship, business, anywhere you think I might be able to be helpful to you and hopefully it'll help our audience as well. Awesome. I'm excited for this part, <laughs> mainly because I like facilitating and mediating, but I actually, this is a very broad question, but what would like the perfect workplace look like in your world? If you had to design a perfect workplace, what would that look like? Oh my gosh. If I had to design the perfect workplace, well, I've worked with a lot of different, several different companies. I've led a couple different companies and, and, and exited them. And I'm still trying to figure that out. And that's what keeps me motivated. And so let me tell you what I'm trying to do okay. to design that perfect workplace. Number one, it's an environment where the best idea wins, right? So one of the things when you talk about creativity and diversity of thought and those different things, you have to have a place to where the strength of the idea wins the day, not who generated the idea. And so I think the best idea winning is a very, very important fundamental construct because then it gives people the chance to win the argument, win the idea, have their idea promoted. And that's how you get more creativity. Okay. The second thing is I want to figure out and continue to grow a family-friendly environment, yep. but a high-performing family. Hmm. Okay. Right? And so if you think about what that means, a high-performing family has love, camaraderie, and fun, but there's a standard of excellence to tie. And a lot of time people kind of attach a family fun environment at work to something that doesn't have high standards and targets. Yeah. I want to figure out how to blend those two things. The third thing that I think is important is to where people that work within that company have the ability to speak up when they're uncomfortable, uncertain, or unsure. Yep. Because you cannot deal with what's hidden. And so a perfect company environment to me is not that it's perfect all the time, yep. but that people know how to fix things when they're not. Right? People understand and have the safety, right, to share things that don't feel right, that, that don't make them feel productive. I'll tell you, at 4 o'clock today, I have a, a conversation. It doesn't matter who with. It'd be kind of HR confidential. But with an employee that just wasn't feeling amazing at what we're doing. 
And so myself and their manager and, and HR are going to get together and we're going to talk about it. Mm-hmm. We're going to try to figure out ways that we can fix it. We're going to try to figure out ways that things went wrong. As a leader, I don't have all the answers or quite frankly, any of them, but I do want to be very, very open, very, very engaged where challenges exist and then work with people that want to work with me to fix them. And that to me is a, a perfect environment. And then the final thing in a perfect environment is that you are successful enough that you can make decisions for the long term, that you're successful enough that you don't have to make every decision about your company, about your people, about what clients you accept based on meeting tomorrow's revenue number, because you've built enough strength where you can think long term. And so those are four or five kind of characteristics that I think need to be built in to kind of that perfect culture. And that last one there reminds me of, you know, your sales process. Like you, you can't be scrappy. You got to be strategic. So that way, you know, where your next lead is coming from, you know, when you're going to close it, like, cause if you're only focusing on the one in front of you, you're always going to be scrambling. <laughs> so as someone who's in the early stages of entrepreneurship and who would hopefully have a team one day, you know, and engage with people who know more than I do, hopefully, you know, how do you foster that sense of safety? And how do you foster that sense of family? Because coming from the corporate world, it's let's do happy hours, all this team building. So how do you go deeper than that? Because families are more than just happy hours and free lunches. Yeah, I think that's right. I think one of the ways that I've seen in building commitment and loyalty with team members is when you as a manager, leader, owner, CEO are helping people build their career goals. Mm. I may not get a lot of hard marks from having the most Gentile approach to communication, but I'm honest, I'm candid, and I have a track record of people being better at their job, making more money, more successful, who's worked with me. Because I spend the time to help people identify and address career deficiencies that don't align with what they want out of their career and goals. And when you really dig in and somebody's got a two-year plan, they've got an income goal, they wanna start their business someday, and you spend a little slice each week on helping them with assignments that lead to what the company needs and what they need personally, I think you can create a strong sense of loyalty and commitment because that person knows that you care about their today and their tomorrow. And I think that is really, really important because any kind of high performing team is going to have tough days and, and, and great days. You're going to have both, yeah. right? But in order to push through the tough days, you got to feel like your team really believes in the whole person, which is you. And then the final thing that I would say in working with folks on your team is the best compliment you can give to your team is high standards. I think that anytime I've performed at my best is for somebody that thought enough of me to give me big jobs, big responsibilities, where I could really do something special. Got it. And that is really, really important, how you believe in and on and with your people for what they can accomplish. And, and that's something that I try to do with everybody that I work with. Awesome. And that got me thinking, you know, first of all, you should definitely be a professor where I got my <laughs> master's program because they're, you know, if you can, if you can understand what they value, you will be able to integrate them seamlessly into the workplace because they'll want to, again, work harder for you because of that. And great answer for someone as myself, who is trying to build an organization, who is also trying to make the workplace better <laughs> um, twofold. So with that, 
you know, the workplace isn't perfect. There's a lot of room to improve. So with your, you know, diversity and inclusion efforts, we've, we've made progress as a society, but where do you think we still have more to go? You know, yeah, what keeps you up at night where you're like, we're just not hitting that or they're not getting it. Yeah. I think, um, the awareness of the need is high. The ability to sustain diversity and improvement programming is low. Got it. We're very good right now as a country and companies at the DNI pep rallies, right? You go to the training, the education, and, and oh man, it's amazing. But we're not as good at tying the diversity and inclusion elements to the bottom line of the business, yeah. to the strategy of the business, to the leadership selection of promotion of the business. And that's the gap that we're working to fill right now. So how do we create that blueprint that outlives the general kind of enthusiasm and hype because it is tightly aligned with business practices, right? It's tightly aligned with growing an amazing company. One of the CMOs that I talked to recently about diversity and inclusion and what we talked about is how DNI is an extension of a corporate brand. So now when you start to think about it like that, it's not necessarily a separate and distinct program. It becomes a part of the fabric and the DNA. And now all of a sudden you can make progress because you're thinking about it in the context of every big decision that you make. Yeah. And that is, that is really, really important. And the second thing that I would say, or third thing I would say, is the leadership in organizations, primarily the CEO, but somebody in the C-suite, has to be a diversity inclusion champion. Being an ally is phenomenal. We need allies. A champion, in my opinion, is different. A champion is going to be on the front line of the conversation and ensure that other people in leadership are not able to, allowed to, or want to forget how diversity and inclusion aligns with the business goals. That champion has to be so good. He or she needs to be so good at their job that they can take the risks to push this issue because their performance speaks so loudly that they'll always be heard, right? And, and those are important characteristics of people that can really move the ball forward because in order to really champion something new and different and tough, you got to be a rock, not, not a rock star in terms of like outwardly. You just have to be, if you are a social media manager, you just got to be in the top two or three percentile social media managers. If you're in HR, if you're in sales, if you're in accounting, whatever your position is, you just need to be one of the best in that position so that when you speak, the company never wants to be without you. And so therefore, if you view it as important, the company is going to take it more seriously because you're a performer. I think that kind of answered my question because I was then thinking, you know, well, do you, if that, if someone in the C-suite, primarily the CEO needs to be a champion, do you think that that can be taught or do you think that's innate? I think most things can be taught, but who's the teacher? And one of the challenges with diversity and inclusion work is usually the teacher about DNI is within the HR organization that's never really had a P&L, that's never sold the product or service, that's never built the technology. Got so it. it's easy for them to be dismissed. So you have to find people either inside or outside the organization that have run businesses. One of the reasons that I'm able to be effective with CEOs is not because I'm better than anybody else, but my experiences in terms of having to run internal initiatives while still maintaining an eye on the bottom line. Yeah. Standing, actually having a P&L, having to sell a business, having to manage stakeholders and shareholders. So that relatability allows us to talk in that language of leadership 
that is a little bit more difficult when you've not done it before or held that position. And so you've got to find somebody that can have a peer level construct or conversation with the C-suite to kind of get them over the hump as to why it's important now. Yeah, that's really interesting because you almost took the responsibility on yourself and on, you know, DE&I experts because when I before that question or before this conversation, I had assumed that it was on the corporations. Like, yes, they do have responsibility, but at the same time, they don't know what they don't know. And if they have an effective teacher, i.e. DNI professional who understands and can speak that same language, it's almost, I mean, I go to therapy on a bi-weekly basis and she always says, you know, I could tell you these things a million times, but it might ring true when someone else tells it to you. So I think of that from like a DNI perspective. Is that how you're approaching these DNI efforts then? I think that's exactly right. I mean, third-party credibility is powerful, right? I mean, it's the, it's the reason, right, that influencers matter. Mm. It's the reason endorsements matter, Right. It's when somebody, it's, it's the reason when a referral with a friend is more impactful in somebody getting hired than somebody just submitting their resume. Yeah. So that third party validation applies to the DNI work just like it does to everything else. It, it matters what others think because most people are not truly independent thinkers. Hmm. Most people are afraid to be wrong. So they're looking for confirmation from people they trust. And that's just, it is what it is. And so because of that, we need to kind of make sure that we're aligned with that. The other thing that I would say about leaders in particular, most leaders that I know that are successful read a lot. Most readers that I know that are successful still read long form content about issues that they're struggling with, that they're learning from, that they're curious, where they see new opportunities. So I also think it's very, very important that the content we provide around these new topics is engaging interesting, informative, and easily available. Yeah. Because leaders will learn new things on their own and they'll be searching for content so that they can get an external point of view. The challenge of a leader is everybody's selling you all the time. You're yeah. always being sold, right? Whether it's your CFO, whether it's your manager, whether it's your board, everybody's selling you. So you have a natural skepticism for information that you receive. And so that's why the third party validation and the reading in particular is really important is you have to give leaders a way they can do their own homework, right? And form that independent decision of what is good and you lead them to some good content versus trying to tell them, pitch them, sell them, yeah. which makes it feel similar to, to every other meeting that's had. Yeah. That's very interesting. Just, you know, I think it ties back to, it could be learned. <laughs> and sometimes they also have to learn it themselves. Like, yeah, so it's a combination of a good teacher, third party, and then also uh, leading the horse to the water, if you will. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I guess last question, because I do always, you know, my tagline is be human, you know, bring your whole, whole self to work. So who are you outside of the DEI world? And what <laughs> brings you back to center? Yeah, that's cool. Well, I very much miss my racquetball. I'm a competitive racquetball player. And it was one of the things to where my racquetball crew, they don't really know me from a work context. So it's just, you know, a bunch of racquetball players talking smack, trying to compete <laughs> and having a good time. And so I, I miss that, but I enjoy doing that. I really enjoy reading and learning new things. And so I'm very interested in, in, in doing that. And I think that I, some people work to live. And in terms of their mindset, 
I think for me, I'm always chasing and thriving for the new idea, right? I'm insatiably curious about new things to try to build and, and how things work. And so I get a lot of energy for doing things that are new, right? So I get bored easy, but I like doing things that are new. And I think the final thing that I would say about me outside of DNI, at the end of the day, I'm the son of a coach. And I never thought I would be a coach like my dad, but I ended up becoming a coach. And so I love to teach, grow, mentor people that are chasing big dreams, right? I think people can achieve average results on their own. But I think that if you're going to do something amazing, transformational, a little help, a little perspective can go a long way. And so I really enjoy doing that. And that's independent of what kind of the mission is, right? It doesn't really matter what it is. It just matters that somebody's chasing a dream and then I'm a big fan and I -hmm. want to help that's awesome. I mean, it ties everything together, like coachable, you're reading and learning more, the new ideas, not getting bored. That's awesome. Well, thanks for, thanks for that. I question my drive. I tell myself I'm worth it. No one's perfect. I gotta try. I'm working at my craft. This podcast is edited and produced by Earfluence. If you're looking for more information on how full service podcast production can amplify your voice, build your community, visit Earfluence.com. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you soon on the Donald Thompson Podcast.